Greetings, listeners. Welcome to the Cold Fusion Now podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in the science, engineering, and business of Cold Fusion Leonard. I'm your host, Ruby Carrot. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Dennis Cravens, a retired college physics teacher and Leonard researcher. He received his PhD from Florida State University and has been working on cold fusion since 1989. Dennis Cravens recently presented at the ICCF21 conference with his associate Dennis Letts, where they discussed their recent experiments generating excess heat of an average of 7 watts thermal for durational periods. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Dennis Cravens. Well, Thank you, Ruby, and I wanted to commend you for putting together all these podcasts and and getting people to talk. (laughs) You're doing a great job. Well, thank you very much. Dr. Cravens, you know that cold fusion has been characterized by its problems with reproducibility, which has stymied understanding and development. Now, at the ICCF21 conference, you reported producing about 7 watts thermal power most of the time. What do you mean by that in the context of the problems of (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean by that? Irreproducibility. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Okay. Uh, What do you mean by that? Uh. Well, the 7 watts thermal most of the time is on that specific device we showed at ICCF. Uh, Most of the other things are are down in the quarter watt or so, but uh, we call it the LT, L-E-N-R tube, although I call it the LETS tube. Uh, That one we got 7 watts in most of the experiments when it worked. So uh, that's sort of a, a cagey thing to say, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we don't always have tubes that work. But when the tube works, it's around 5 to 7 watts. Uh, sometimes they get up to 10, 20 watts for an hour or so, but then it goes back down. Mm-hmm. So we they run for days like that. And if you do a SIMS analysis on the material and all, you'll see little pits and fissures and things like that that's sort of reminiscent of what uh, Stringham and others see in their sonic things, little volcano-looking things. Uh, But when we get the ones that have very high uh, power densities, they don't last very long. So it's as though they're tearing themselves up. What I was more interested in was to understand when you are able to get this reaction going most of the time. Yeah, usually we put the the tube in there, and once we get it going, it 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 works. <laughs> uh, we've only done maybe a dozen or so different tubes, so I wouldn't say we've got reproducibility all the time, but it seems to be good in our hands with the materials we have right now. And as you know, when you change materials, sometimes your effects go away. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But uh, we are making our own is what it amounts to. We're doing our own plating jobs and things like that. So we are in pretty good control of the materials. 
Well, this is good news. Um, now, in his part of the talk at ICCF 21, Dennis Letts described the experimental fact that in your cell, uh, heavy hydrogen works, but light hydrogen doesn't work. Can you tell us about the process of determining that and what does that mean for your cell design? Basically, when we're we first put the tube in there, we put uh, deuterium gas in there and let it start running. But after a week or so, <laughs> Dennis Letts, I call him D1, I'm D2, uh, he, he likes to kill the effect to make sure that things go back to baseline and go back to zero and that our number isn't some sort of uh, problem with the calorimeter that it just drifted off. So he likes to put hydrogen in there, and that usually kills them. Sometimes we have to vacuum it, put hydrogen in it, vacuum and hydrogen. And I, I say hydrogen, it's natural hydrogen. It's not really light hydrogen. Uh, but uh, when we do that, they go back to baseline, and we don't get anything. And about half the time we can recover from that if we heat it up and pull a good vacuum and put deuterium in it, we start seeing the effect again. But uh, about half of them, we never get the same level as we did when we first put the deuterium in there. It's like the natural hydrogen sticks and messes things up. And the old saying is, when a bird has a broken wing, he may heal, but he never flies as high. So once we get the thing working, once they're exposed to hydrogen, they don't work as well. And we try to have the exact same conditions on the deuterium runs as our natural hydrogen runs, the same pressure, same temperature, same everything, just different gases. And we can do that very easily. There's, It's just gas and vacuum is all we're putting in and changing. Well, that's just a very interesting experimental fact that uh, may help in the theoretical uh, explorations. My background is actually in biophysics, and there's something called competitive inhibition. When you have something that goes to the same... Uh, enzyme or binding site or something like that, it can mess things up. And hydrogen can do that. I think deuterium is required. And they, these are uh, palladium-plated systems, by the way, so keep that in mind. Well, uh, in one of your earlier experiments, uh, it involved a dual laser, which appeared to stimulate the production of excess heat. Can you talk about that experiment, and what did the results tell you about this reaction? Okay. Uh, the dual laser experiment is really very tricky, and, and it takes a lot to do. It seems easy, but... You've got to control the frequency of two lasers fairly exactly to within a fractions of nanometer wavelength. Uh, and you've got to have the polarization of the lasers lined up because in order to mix, they have to add their electric fields together. So when they're linear polarized, they've got to uh, have the same electric field orientation. And then you've got to have it hit the material so that the 
pointing vector, that's the E cross B type term, where the force is energy, it's the movement of energy. Uh, you've got to have a component of that to push it into the material. So the geometry is a little tricky. You've got to get that right. And then uh, you've got to have the right amount of gold plated on your palladium because there has to be something that absorbs at the frequency you're uh, transmitting at, and it can't be too thick or you're not going to be able to load your material. And the phonons, that's the oscillation or the heat movement in there, uh, has to be uh, going down the interface between the gold and the palladium. So if that thickness is just right. So it's a really kind of a tricky experiment. But uh, once you do it, you get, uh, you tune your lasers and you tune them to a given frequency and you start getting more heat than you did before. And then uh, the it was really fun the first time through. It, it took us a while. Like, you can't shine through plastic because uh, the plastic changes your orientation of the uh, polarization, so it's got to be glass and some other <laughs> trickery in there. But uh, one of the fun things is just rotate your laser beam so that the it's polarized uh, normal to the other one, and you don't get anything. So just by rotating the these lasers outside your cabinet, you can get heat or not heat. It's really fun to watch. Uh, but what that says is, uh, according to Peter Hagelstein, and he, he loves the experiment, basically in cold fusion, part of the problem is getting the deuterium to react to get the helium, assume it's helium. Uh, you got to get that nuclear reaction going, but you also have to get that nuclear energy out to heat without the radiation. So it has to have some way to couple into that. And this is showing that there's a coupling between the nuclear states and the phonon states, sort of like uh, a nuclear acoustic resonance. There are ways to do that. And that t should tell you a little bit about the processes. Uh, you got to have uh, non-zero quadrupole moments in order to mix them and all this kind of thing. So it tells you a way to go about getting the the heat out of your system, that part of the theoretical model. So a lot of people look at how to get it started, but you also have to look at how it's coming out. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just thinking, I'm wondering, you know, when you get those lasers then pointed at the right spot, is it that it's it can start the heat or does it, increase heat that's already being made at that spot? Uh, uh, I believe that it's increasing it. Uh, we've got to have a uh, cathode that is active. So usually we hmm. make sure we run it so that it's, it's giving off excess heat and that sort of stuff. And then we turn down the current and the heat a little bit and then it goes out of the heat producing mode and then the laser is just enough to kick it back into that hmm. so uh it it, it it's it's got a couple into that uh 
phonon resonance in order to dump its energy. And if if you know about some reactions, they've got they kind of know where they're going. <laughs> they need to know that they can uh, do certain reactions. So, and it's really fun. The first time we did it, we were looking at the peaks in the absorbance spectra because. Uh, Les and I thought, well, that's where it's going to be. We'll just hit it right there, the best absorption. But it turned out it wasn't where we thought it was. We called Peter, and uh, he was saying, no, it's the, where it's got the maximum slope on the curve and not at the peak of the curve. And that's where we were seeing it, and it matched his theory, and he was really happy about that. Mm, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> we got a... a, a uh, co-authored paper with him on that stuff, yeah. Dr. Cravens, you and your colleagues have been working out the science you need in order to produce a commercial product. Describe some of the issues you face trying to design a technology when the science is still not fully understood. Uh, well, it's difficult, number one. <laughs> That's why nobody's <laughs> done it yet. <laughs> uh, uh, First, you got to get the material so that it's going to be commercially uh, usable. Uh, just because you can generate heat most of the time when you want it, that's not good enough. Uh, people will say, oh, well, that, everybody will want to do that, but try to sell that to somebody. Uh, you've got to get the cost of the material per watt down. So our target right now is to get at least 50 watts per gram of palladium. Other materials we could get uh, less wattage because palladium isn't cheap. Um, and then you got to get your COP, uh, basically the ratio of how much heat you get out compared to how much power you put in. And that's got to uh, be up. And the problem is, when we get things that have a high COP, they put out a lot of heat uh, output for the little bit in, they are very low power things. So you can get a very small things that have very large COPs. I've got things with infinite COPs that self-heat, but they're down in the microwatts, and that's not very usable. Uh, and then you've got to... Uh, get the total amount of heat up and the efficiency up and the cost down. So all those things are, are the problems on the engineering side. Uh, but as long as we can get three times out than what we put in, we should be able to commercialize it. We're just not there yet in a consistent way. What do you look for in a theory to help you guide the experiments to get that breakthrough? Uh, we, I don't have any theories that are very usable at this time. We have a model that predicts things. Uh, Dennis Letts has developed a, a, an empirical-type model, and it's very similar in mathematical structure to what Ed has. Basically, it's exponential in the temperature, it's linear in the amount of the material, and uh, but it's also 
there's an exponential term in activation energy or uh, energy of vacancy formation. Something in the material itself is very sensitive to things. We believe that it's the vacancy formations. Ed thinks it's crack formations and that sort of stuff. But there's something in the material itself, and that's the real problem, and there's not a good theory to say what it is and how to make that. Um, I personally, when I'm making uh, materials with additives, there are things that I look for, and that is in order for all these things to come out, the nearest the heat to come out, the nearest I understand is there's got to be a quadrupole moment in some nuclear structure so that the nucleus and the quadrupole moment or the, uh, the quadrupole number there is means that the nucleus isn't round, so it's either squashed like an M&M or it's uh, stretched like an egg. You know, there's two ways to do it. Uh, Mm-hmm. But it, it's not spherical, and you've got to have that so that the nuclear states can rattle around and generate phonons, and that's heat generation. Uh, I think it's actually the optical phonons, but other people have other uh, pathways. Some say, say it's the acoustical phonons. I think Mitch is that way. Uh, but you've got to have some way to couple that energy to get it out as heat because we want it out as heat and not neutrons or tritium or something. Um, so the theories aren't developed enough to do that, and part of that is we don't have good experiments that we can turn a handle and change the crack size or turn a handle and change the uh, the vacancies within the metal lattice and things like that. So it's 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 really tough without a good theory. There are hundreds of theories out there, but none of them seem to be useful at this stage. It tell us, tell me what knob to turn and what material to do and how to make the material. Hmm. Well, uh, you've been a longtime researcher involved in many projects over the years, and many of them attempting a commercial product. Uh, can you talk about James Patterson and the importance of his work, and why did that very promising design eventually fail? Uh, okay. Uh, Tim Patterson uh, set up uh, clean energy technology. Basically, uh, his uh, grandson uh he put as the president of that company, and I don't know if the technology failed or uh, other things happened. Uh, basically, Jim was using materials that he had from the 60s. He made these little uh, plastic beads that were going to be used for NASA to to try to match the floating in water for outer space, something or another, uh, some testing and stuff like that. So he had a big batch of these beads, and he plated over them, and he used plating material that was from uh, the 70s or so, I think, from Technique out of uh, Providence, Rhode Island. But that 
the man who made the material died in a very gruesome way. It was a murder-suicide. and I don't want to get too far in it, but he was found Jeez. dead with his the head of his girlfriend in the front seat and all this kind of stuff. It was really oh. pretty bad. Anyway, he was gone, and uh, they did not have the formulas and what was in there. And so Jim really didn't know what he was plating with. He just got these commercial plating solutions. And uh, plating solutions of palladium may have what they call brighteners in them and other materials. So, uh, and it also, it depends on whether you heat up the material or cool it down. They, uh, while you're plating, they have different uh, impurities in it, depending on which way you're going and all this kind of stuff. And he went up to, uh, to talk to George Miley at University of Illinois and uh, George uh, ran some of these. I actually spent two weeks up there with Gokul, one of his grad students, running these things. And if you look at George Miley's little double lump uh, transmutation things, that was actually from one of those SETI cells. And um, anyway, they, they did a neutron activation of it, trying to find what it is. But just because you know what's in there, it doesn't tell you how to make it because the solutions when you plate um, they don't plate everything from the solution at the same ratios that's in the liquid Uh, and that it depends on the temperature it depends on the current and all that Jim was putting these beads in a little hopper and using a little uh, screw turner that he got from a uh, ice maker uh, <laughs> that sort of stuff with aluminum in it and all this kind of so don't really know what all was in there and how it was done and when he ran out of beads uh, they didn't work as well and about that time his grandson J.R. Uh, died from uh, brain hemorrhage uh, aneurysm while he was racquetball playing and uh Jim kind of lost interest in some of that, and then Kim died, and uh, it just kind of wasn't followed through. So uh, it's sort of a sad story. I, 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 I was making some of the things and all that, but from beads that they supplied me. So uh, you'll find that a lot of these startup companies do well until they run out of the material or something, and then it's a problem. And that's why right now what Let's and I are doing or trying to make sure our supply line is pure and we know what it is and we make the materials directly rather than mm-hmm. uh, be beholden to somebody else. Pons and Flashman had the same problem with Johnson Matthey. They weren't really telling him what was in there. Mm. So that's that's the problem with that one. <laughs> Uh, Well, that's a real tragedy, and um, we'll be right back after this calendar update. Mark your calendars for the 13th workshop on anomalies and hydrogen-loaded metals this October 5th through 9th in Greccio, Italy. Get details and register at the International Society of Condensed Matter Nuclear Science website, iscmns.org. 
The Japan Cold Fusion Society Study Group holds their 19th meeting at Owate University this November 9th and 10th in Morioka, Japan. For more information, go to iscmns.org. And we're back with independent Lena researcher Dr. Dennis Cravens. Well, Dr. Cravens, you are not only a scientist, but an artist and a writer as well, winning awards for family screenplays. What is your interest in writing, and how did that develop, and how does it complement your work in science? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> what it amounted to is I retired, and I also had been working in the lab and trying to work with nano powders, nano nickel and stuff, and I was unfortunately one of the 10% people that is very allergic to it, and they originally diagnosed me with pulmonary hypertension and said, you got three to five years to, die, to live, and so I just uh, wrote out my bucket list and started doing things, <laughs> and mm. uh, writing a screenplay, writing a book, I have several uh, books, uh, they're religious type things, uh, uh, a unified gospel thing, uh, and uh, I tried to stay out of the lab for a while because that nickel, when it gets airborne, the nano stuff, it's hard to get out of there. Uh, it's very any dangerous, rate, yeah. Yeah, it can go through plastic and all kinds of stuff, and there have been several uh, death from it and all. I was I was lucky because we've got lots of people in the cold fusion community that comes to your aid and, and national labs and people that are MDs and all you know kind of give you advice and tell you what to do and get around it. Uh, but started writing uh, plays, uh, screenplays. Uh, was uh, having a play. Uh, I still have to write a song. Peter Hagelstein writes music, by the way. Uh, and uh, you got to have. I did not know that. <laughs> you've got to have a range of things, just like you've got to have a well balanced diet for your body. I think you have to have a well balanced diet in your brain. And screenplay writing and all that was one of them. So I got these awards from International Family Films, two years running, best screenplays and stuff like that. Um, wow, congratulations. <laughs> I, I doubt if it'll ever get produced. They say that uh, a newcomer in the field has a one chance in six thousand of doing it. That's about the same odds as deuterium in a uh, in a natural hydrogen. You went out six thousand or something like that. So uh, those things uh, you gotta have going for you, other than the lab work, because this gets a little frustrating and depressing after a while. I, I go through a couple of years with getting no results, and then finally you get something, and then another year where your material changes. So you got to have other things to keep you going. But my real love is uh, multi-dimension uh, unification theories, uh, general relativity, and stuff like that. I, when I was at Florida State, I took a general relativity course under P.A.M. Dirac. And uh, we, it, it changed my outlook. I was lucky enough that my apartment was near his house, so I'd walk back with him, you know, every other day or so. 
and uh, it changes your outlook. So I'm sort of got a soft spot on multi-dimension clusicline theories and uh, 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 large number hypothesis and things like that. So I plan on uh, throttling back on the lab work because these things get heavy, all these vacuum things and uh, pumps and all this kind of stuff. So I'll probably cut down 50% on that and start writing up on my uh, relativity starting from axiometric uh, thermodynamics. There's a way to get to relativity that way. Uh, so that that's really what I want to do is just go up to my little cabin I've got on top of the mountain and in the forest and read my relativity books and that sort of stuff. So walk up there half the day and do that. So that's my ultimate goal. So you've got to have a balance in life. Just a little light reading to take your mind off a of cold fusion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, finally, Dennis, I know you're not just ready to retire from cold fusion yet. What's next <laughs> for your experiments? Uh, well, I can't say fully what it is because it's not all protected yet. <laughs> uh, I've been really lucky in that uh, industrial heat has given me creative, creative freedom uh, so I can do various things. So there's a few experiments I want to run that I can do in my lab. I, I'm not a national lab. I'm not a uh, academic lab or, you know, it's, it's, I've got 7,000, uh, 700 square feet of lab space and a lot of equipment, but uh, I am limited. And there are certain configurations that I want to do. And one of them, uh, well, one I can talk about is the uh, ceramic heating element that is being used by point sources looking at it. Um, basically a solid-state tokamak design so that a, um, running current through a secondary of a transformer like a tokamak but the t the material is a proton conductor with uh, palladium and other things in it so that I can get current running in the ring at very high currents in a magnetic field because the magnetic field seems to help these things and some things like that. So there's those things, and there's also some new material that I'm working with that I'm not at liberty to say at this time. <laughs> Uh, because they want to try to send in a patent application before it's all done. <laughs> you know how it is. <laughs> if, if industrial heat is giving me money, I'll, I'll, I'll say, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll wait six months and do that. Give them a head start. Uh, but uh, there are some materials that should work, and it's not a configuration that anybody has used yet that I know of. Mm. Uh, so it's a whole different approach, and it's probably a whole uh, new area to patent. Um, pro probably one of the problems in cold fusion area is you can't get patents very easily. I've got seven of them, actually, but it's hard to get patents in the area 
uh, and even now, as people do things, everybody's already done a lot of it. You've already done gasoline. You've already used nickel. You've already, you know, on and on and on. Uh, so there's not a lot of new territory to do. Uh, so to patent it, you need to have something that's new and different. And most all the things people are doing has already been done 10, 15 years ago. So uh, we need to uh, do something different. And I think I've got something totally different. Mm. <laughs> Dr. Dennis just, Cravens. Just call me, just call me D2. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Dennis Cravens, we wish you success in your research, and thank you for being with us today. Okay. <laughs> We've been speaking with Dr. Dennis Cravens, a retired college physics teacher and Lenner researcher reporting an average 7 watts excess thermal power from recent Lenner experiments performed with his colleague Dennis Letts. That's our show for today. You can find more episodes of the Cold Fusion Now podcast on our website at coldfusionnow.org or subscribe on iTunes. Until next time, I'm Ruby Carrot. <laughs>